Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, come on all you beanie boys, it's SST 229, the paper bag improvisational music company improvised my ass record. Very cool to get into paper bag again. It's always a wild ride. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to this one. Um, you know, the album cover itself, I would say, speaks volumes <laughs> for for this record. Yeah. And uh, really interested to get into it with you. Before. I'm interested to see if we're going to be able to post that on our Instagram. Probably with a bunch of little round dots. You could get away with it. <laughs> You'll have to work your your dot magic. Yeah. We'll get the we'll get the central scrutinizer in. Yeah, maybe to do some censorship. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Well, before we get into uh, this wild wild ride with the paper bag, why don't you hit us with some spiels? All right. So Ryan, as you know, I was out of town for for work a week ago, and there was a record store two blocks from my hotel. Oh yeah, so right. I, so I walked over there. Nothing super mind-blowing for records. Pretty pricey. Um, How many times did you go, though? Well, a few. I, <laughs> I always scour the used CDs looking for gems. Uh, nothing. Um, wow. But they had an entire wall of tapes, and then I ended up buying, a, like, a shitload of tapes. And, oh, wow. And as you mentioned, like, you know, I took down this huge pile of tapes, sat there calculating them all in my head, put you know half of them back knowing full well that entire time that I was coming back the next day to to pull them back off the shelf and buy them which is exactly what I did so good for you yeah I still have most of my tapes that I've had all these years you know I'd say a good 90% of those I've ended up buying on LP or CD over the years but there's yeah. there's stuff in my tape collection that I don't own in any other format or was never even available in any other format and I, yep. you know, I still listen to tapes. So, uh, quite a bit recently, actually, you know, it's kind of fun and nostalgic for sure. And, you know, I, I am not an audiophile at all. So the quality doesn't really matter to me so much. Yeah. You just got to crank the treble and yeah. you're good. You're good. <laughs> no, I got, I have an equalizer hooked up to my cassette deck. So oh, I, no way. I can get it sounding pretty good. Oh, right on. So yeah, some of these I own in other formats, but the price was right, so I bought the tape. And some I don't own at all, so I'm going to just give you 10 that I bought. Just 10? Yeah. Did you buy more than 10? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll probably give you 10 more next week. Did you have to whip out your head cleaner? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Matt. Hit me with 10 cassette tapes that you could not live without. Yeah, and some of these were sealed even. Okay, Junkyard, Sixes, Sevens, and Nines, the 1991 follow-up to their classic 89 debut, still with Brian Baker and Chris Gates in the lineup. Not hair metal, so don't even go there, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lost classic. By 91, nobody was really interested in this kind of stuff, although the Black Crows were still huge in 91, 92, and, and so were Guns N' Roses for that matter. This is such a great record. It should have been huge. Awesome album. Mm. Speaking of the Black Crows, a band I recently heard of in uh, Crows drummer Steve Gorman's excellent autobiography, the band is called BR549. They toured a fair amount with the Crows in the mid-90s. I, I don't think I'd ever heard that name before until he mentioned them. Super interesting choice for them to take up on out on tour. Straight up honky-tonk country. 
um, like that Bakersfield Dwight Yoakam style. They all looked the part too, like you know bolo ties and all those things. It's now what what we now call alt country or Americana, I suppose. Hmm. I picked picked up their debut self titled album on Arista from 1996. It's really great. I'm on the lookout for more. Br five four nine. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of roots music, here's a cool one, Ryan. Grievous Angels uh, is the name of the band. This is the Canadian Grievous Angels, not the U.S. one with albums on Bloodshot. Uh, do you know who, who the Grievous Angels are, Ryan? I, do, I don't, I don't, but it's so funny because I've got a can rock spiel and I'm going to just peek inside my books real quick here while you're talking about them. Okay, so all of the musicians went on to other bands, mainly known only in Canada, but the band leader is Charlie Angus. Now, Charlie was in early 80s Toronto punk band Le Tranger. Oh, Le yeah. Le I don't know. How do you say that, Ryan? Oh, man. Le Tranger? Yeah, there you go. With, among with other... Andrew Cash, right? Yeah, with Andrew yeah, Cash. Exactly. And Tim Vesely. Tim, Tim among others, uh, Tim went on to be a member of, of a band that's pretty well known in Canada called Real Statics. Yeah. Who we really should talk about sometime on the show. Andrew went on to a successful solo career in Canada, and Charlie formed this band, the Grievous Angels. Uh, he also became a well-known politician in Canada for the NDP, which is Canada's leftist socialist workers party, of which I'm a proud member. This is cool. It's self-released by the band on cassette, and it's never been reissued on any other format. Grievous Angels went on to release eight more albums, including a reunion one in 2021, many with working class activist lyrics, not dissimilar to Kirk Kelly, actually. Mm. And Charlie is also a prolific author, mainly writing about social justice issues. And he's been speaking recently about writing his memoirs, uh, like going back to the Latranger days, his punk roots. A and Andrew Cash for, for a period was also a uh, Canadian member of parliament for the new democratic party uh, with Charlie and together they rocked many, many rallies. Oh, and Ryan, uh, another well-known Canadian indie musician, Jason Collette also sings on this, this album on a totally ripping version of Samson and Delilah. Huh? Okay. Switching gears, but staying in Canada. I, I already had this, but I had to grab it on tape because it's a classic. The band is a neon Rome. And it's their one and only album, New Heroin. This has been reissued on a self-titled CD and also digitally. So people should check that out if they've never heard A Neon Rome. It's super gothy, dark post-punk with a you know, kind of a spiritual vibe. If you've ever read the chapter on the band in the definitive Can Rock book, Have Not Been the Same, you'll know the vocalist Neil Arabic burned bright and fast, eventually reportedly taking a vow of silence. <laughs> and filmmaker Bruce McDonald, most famously probably known for his movie Hardcore Logo, based his earlier film Roadkill on the band Neon Rome. Yeah. Uh, extra credit to this album for having Canadian rock icon Ian Blurton playing drums on half of it. Uh, two of the members of Neon Rome went on to play in Ian's awesome band Change of Heart. Yeah. But what probably drew, to, drew me to this uh, cassette more than anything though, Ryan, is, I'll hold it up for you so you can see it. Hold on. Mm. Can you see what label that's on? Oh, it's on Fringe Records. Awesome. Yeah. So um, Fringe Product was a label associated with Toronto Record Store uh, Record Peddler. 
mm-hmm. that released some albums by Canadian bands like Sacrifice, Sudden Impact, Razor, Disciples of Power, Dayglo Abortions, Youth, 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 DOA, Bunch of Fucking Goofs, Dogs with Jobs, and tons, tons more. But they also licensed records by Dead Kennedys, Dag Nasty, Bad Brains, Husker Du, Black Flag, Rollins Band, DRI, so many more. And they were a total lifeline to us small town yeah. Canadian punk rockers. I totally. ordered many, many tapes from them, most of which I still have. In 1988, they famously got charged with possession of obscene material uh, for the purpose of distrib- distributing it in relation to the Dayglo's album Feed Us a Fetus and Here Today, Guano Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I just read uh, Cretton's book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the charges were supposedly brought after an Ottawa cop found his daughter listening to a Dayglo abortions record. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, sorry. And it's not, it's not Cretton's book. Uh, Cretton just, uh, uh, was a, was a huge participant in that, uh, Chris Walter book mm-hmm. on Dayglo abortions. I read that this yeah. summer. <laughs> I did, I did not go back and listen to the Dayglos, but I, <laughs> I thought that would be a good read and it definitely was. And it goes at, into that period, uh, at length about how that, <laughs> The yeah. cop's daughter <laughs> caused it all. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, fringe product, man. I'll buy anything with that logo on it. Okay. Staying in Canada for one more. I bought the second Doughboys album, 1989's Home Again. Now, like you, Ryan, I've heard this album like a hundred billion times. And back in the day on a dub tape, I had it uh, with that on one side and Happy Accidents on the other. Oh. And it's on the SS Tree. It was produced by Bill uh, Stevenson and Stephen Edgerton. All-time classic, Ryan. And you know what's cool about sometimes buying something you already own, but on a different different format? You listen to it again. Yeah, rediscovery. Yeah. Here's a band, Ryan, I spieled about a few years ago. San Francisco band Short Dogs Grow. Oh, yeah. Now, these guys would have fit perfectly on a bill with Run, Westy Run. And I bet they did play together, you know, same era. It's kind of that ragged rock and roll stuff that I just love. Not quite tipsy gypsy, but on the periphery. Too indie to be tipsy gypsies, I'd say, but, you know. Like drowsy gypsy? You know, like just out of control rock and roll. Like, not like, unlike the replacements or something like that. Okay. Another band I've talked about my love for that also skirts the edge of that tipsy gypsy thing is The Hangman. Now, I own their classic 1989 debut on LP and have also listened to it a gazillion times, but it's just so fucking killer. Not a bad track on it. Maybe someday the band will get the rights back from Capitol and reissue it along with their unreleased second album. Kind of on the tree, their first manager was Keith Morris. He, yeah. he talks a bit about his involvement with The Hangman in, his, in he and Jim Rulin's book, which is my favorite part of that book. But that's a classic album. Uh, Electric Angels, self-titled. You wouldn't like this, Ryan. You'd call it hair metal, but it's right up my alley. More of that Thunders, <laughs> 70s Aerosmith rock. Uh, Ryan Roxy on guitar. He's been one of Alice Cooper's guitarists for, for many years. Another that I already have on LP, but the cassette was a buck, so I bought it. Cosmic Psychos, Blokes You Can Trust. 1991, their first one for Amphetamine Reptile. Love the Psychos. And it's one dollar, one dollar, man, and it's got classics wow. on it like "Hooray, Fuck" and "Dead Rue." Awesome <laughs> album. 
Okay, last one I'll mention this week. Uh, like I said, I'll probably do part two next week. Yeah, some, please. Some Velvet Sidewalk. Whirlpool, oh, yeah. 1993 yes. on K Records. Now we're talking. Yeah, believe it or not, my first K cassette. I don't own any any other K cassettes. Hmm. We've talked about them before, but holy shit, I just got off on this so hard this week. I I have to think that putting Velvet in their name was a reference to the Velvet Underground. Some serious VU vibes going on here, and it's on the tree. Steve Fisk plays organ on it as well. Yeah, all, all those uh, records by some Velvet Sidewalk are good. We spoke about them before, about how, like, way, way, way back when we first saw that movie Hype, mm-hmm. you saw some Velvet Sidewalk, and you're like, and it was lit at that point. I went to go see Hype in the theater, never heard anything about some Velvet Sidewalk. That's how, like, this is before the internet, right? Yeah. And, and I remember seeing them like, oh my God, that's, that's totally out there. Um, but I never sought it out until many, many years later and was like, why did I wait so long to check these guys out? Yeah. Well, I've got their Whirlpool tape, paid two bucks for it. Cool. Yeah. They had all kinds of tapes there, like, uh, you know expensive ones like they had some sst stuff like bug they had and they had it priced at like 30 bucks or something like that yeah Pass. i just yeah <laughs> remember how i i sent you that picture of that john cruth record i got at the flea market the other day yep another guy at the flea market was selling like sst tapes like my war and slip it in 50 dollars a tape Get at the serious. flea at the flea market Get yeah serious that's wild yeah maybe for th- some thrasher skate rock or something but yeah too much all right man uh what do you have well i don't know how to say this but yet again we're on the same wavelength when it comes to spiels because i've got a canrock spiel like i said and you were referencing this book that i have right here have not been the same the canrock renaissance essential essential book it's essential it's you know eight almost 800 pages but here's why i um i came upon the need to have a canrock spiel first of all i know people tune in for the obscure canadian indie rock references on the show and you never know when someone's going to be a first-time listener and you really want to sink the hook they're tuning into you don't know mojack they want to hear some sst but then you you really sink the hook with some obscure canadian indie rock references and here we go because i i picked up this book arguably the follow-up to have not been the same called hearts on fire Mm mm-hmm Six years that changed Canadian music, 2000 to 2005. It's it's a focus on these five years. I have not read it yet. Have not been the same covers basically, you know, I guess like late 70s up until the late 90s, I guess, right? But it's written by one of the same authors, Michael Barclay. He co-authored Have Not Been the Same, and he is the, the sole author of this one. You put these two together, you've got like 1,400 pages oh, yeah. of, of in-depth uh, Canadian music history and good Canadian music history. And in fact, I was just looking in Have Not Been the Same, and there absolutely is several references to Grievous Angels in oh, this guaranteed. book. Oh, yeah. man, like, listen, a lot of our U.S. listeners love bands like you know, Brian Wal- Walsby is always posting about the Nils. There's a whole chapter about the Nils and have not been the same. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, there's whole chapters on no means no and DOA, and uh, Brian's always posting a Voivod. There's a whole chapter on Voivod. There's like um, uh, lots of uh, lots of our U.S. listeners are huge Sloan fans, like Greg yeah. Pollard from from the Where It Went podcast. Whole chapter on Sloan, and that second book, like I, I'm that's definitely on my my to do list because so yeah. many of those bands that I'm assuming are in there, like yeah. you and I would have saw, especially you know, at our hometown venue, you know, the one that I still book bands at, Yeah, all of those bands, like the Rio Statics and Change of Heart and uh, the Local Rabbits, all of those bands, Sloan, you know, just played there over and over and over. Uh, uh, Thrush Hermit, many, many times. Yeah. Oh, funny. You're mentioning Thrush Hermit. Okay. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second here, maybe. This, uh, this second book, Hearts on Fire, again, 2000 to 2005. Check out some of the bands that are covered in this. Godspeed, You Black Emperor, The Weaker Thans, New Pornographers, The Deers, Constantines, The Corb Lund Band, who used to be in what band, Brent? The Smalls. The Smalls, Corb Lund, yeah. Um, and then some uh, scene and uh, label spotlights as well in this one. Um, <laughs> there's, there is a chapter on Nickelback, you know, don't hold it against the book. Um, Alexis on fire, fucked up. Uh, let me see here. Buck 65, hot, hot heat, who are just having a bit of a resurgence now, actually. Every single band you just mentioned, with the exception of Nickelback, has has played at that that club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. They put Arcade Fire at the end of this book. Um, it'll be interesting to read that, given how they have hit the press lately. Yeah. Um, but anyways, here's where I'm going with this. This week's spiel is Ryan's Can Rock Renaissance because um, I got this Hearts on Fire book and I was like, oh man, you know, I should go check out this have not been the same book uh, because I haven't flipped through this for a while. I'm probably never going to reread the whole thing, but there's just a few choice chapters like you mentioned that you got to flip to. Anyways, I was having a bit of a Can Rock Renaissance and I was like, I'm going to spiel about some of my favorite Canadian bands, rapid fire, relatively rapid fire, that don't really get much airtime on our show or in either of these books, hmm. in fact. But for a period of time, they were big, or people in those bands went on to something big. And these are the bands that, like, you know, if you were at home, Brant, watching the CBC, and you had just finished an episode of, I don't know, like the Beachcombers or the Edison Twins or danger bay and you stayed up late and you were going to watch then like ear to the ground mm -hmm. or the wedge on much music or maybe even rita and friends brand remember rita and friends <laughs> do, and, yeah. the, and the bands on rita and friends that's like the canadian version of the johnny cash show yeah uh, but they uh, would have i'd say the tommy hunter show was the oh, <laughs> <laughs> well rita and friends came after tommy hunter but right, yeah, right. you're absolutely right good one um anyways here are five bands uh, I had no idea you were going to mention so many Canadian bands in your spiel, but hey, why not? Um, it's a paper bag episode, so we can go wherever the hell we want. That's right. Um, here we go. Rapid fire, five bands that people got to check out from Canada that people really don't talk enough about anymore. Head, and this is stylized as H-Head. Now, this is a band from Ajax, Ontario, from the 90s. Noah Mintz was the lead singer and guitarist who became... A pretty famous, I guess, in Canada, like producer and engineer. Um, but I think they're probably nowadays their claim to fame is this is Brendan Canning's 
first band or one of his first bands. And Brendan, of course, famously started Broken Social Scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but their three records, Fireman, Jerk, and Ozzy from 92, 94, and 96, respectively, they're still just amazing 90s indie grunge rock great songwriting great playing they kind of went through a rotating lineup of uh drummers really noah and brendan held that band together go and check out their videos for the songs answers or flower just it'll just take you right to the 90s and amazing amazing tunes and brent a live version of Answers on Rita and Friends is on YouTube. So you can always check that out. Uh, band number two. I don't think you can sound any more Canadian than this. Salmon Blaster. Do you remember Salmon Blaster? I do, yep. Yeah. So from London, Ontario, they put out a self-titled CD in 96. And also, and actually, they had a 7-inch just before that called Vroom. Check out their video for this song, Freeway. Again, great pop punk grunge type of tunes from the mid 90s and yeah right records is releasing this year a double lp collecting all of their tracks including their unreleased second album this is one of those canadian bands that were you know about to or did kind of get scooped up by a major and then their album never came out kind of like the primrods right yeah all right band number three mystery machine i was i was digging mystery machine so hard this week oh my gosh Formed in uh, 1990 from Vancouver, their uh, their first three records, Glazed, Ten Speed, and Headfirst into Everything, are absolute Canadian indie shoegaze classics. Like they are start to finish amazing. And Brent, you and I saw them open up for DOA way back when, and it was one of the best shows of all time. I saw them lots of times, man. They were total road dogs and living in yeah. Western Canada. You got to yeah. see them quite a bit. Yeah, they put out a a bit of a reunion album in 2012, Western Magnetics. Doesn't really grab me as much as the first three, that kind of the original era of the band, but I got back into listening to it again this week, and it's worth your time. All right, now I'm going to go all the way to the East Coast. I'm going to go to St. John's, Newfoundland, and mention Hardship Post. Kind of that Halifax pop explosion, as it was called in the early 90s, kind of when Sloan... Um, really made that area famous and then they eventually got signed to Sub Pop definitely got to check out some Hardship Post their 1995 album Somebody Spoke just awesome still killer grungy but Eastern Canadian grunge like in the best way and they put out tons and tons of singles Hardship Post amazing we've talked about them before for sure because somebody reached out to us I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember the name but talking about hardship post bootlegs and how they source them. I, I can't remember the story, but I'll dig it out. <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. Okay. And finally, uh, just again, I'm going five. There's dozens and dozens I could go into, but here's here's number five and probably the best known one, but I got way, way back into them this summer in particular. This is a band that my buddy Derek tipped me to when I, he and I were roommates way, way back. He pushed their record Love Terra on me. This is mm-hmm. Eric's trip. Yep. Um, just killer from Moncton, New Brunswick started in, uh, 1990, tons and tons of records also out on sub pop. Their records like love Terra forever again, purple blue, their Peter EP, um, Rick white and Julie Dorian 
really kind of the the most famous people in the band but all of the people in eric's trip went on to tons and tons of other amazing bands eric's trip eventually evolved into elevator to hell then elevator through then elevator really becoming rick white's project and we've spoken about rick before because he had a really close relationship with the sadies Mm -hmm. of course Mm -hmm. but but eric's trip i mean kind of like canada's dinosaur jr and sebado at the same time Yep. Just awesome. All of their records are great. And here we go. This is another reason I wanted to mention this this week. Rick White has a new record out. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's called Rick White Plays the Sadies. Mm. Really a tribute to Dallas, of course, who tragically passed away not too long ago. Go to the Rick White Bandcamp or the Blue Fog Records Bandcamp. And you can pick that up. You definitely need to get into that. I checked out some of the tracks. Rick plays all the instruments. Course. on the, on this tribute to the Sadies and just killer Eric's trip hardship post mystery machine salmon blaster head um, great Canadian stuff there have not been the same absolutely essential book and this new one which I'm hopefully gonna crack over uh, the upcoming holidays here hearts on fire can't get enough of this stuff have you ever been to Rick White's YouTube channel no okay I'm not even gonna tell you what he does on there what but just go go on find his youtube channel and check out what rick white does in his spare time these days okay it's completely unrelated to music but it's such a cool project just go and check it out okay i thought you were going to maybe mention his other band that he just put out this band called old you ever heard of that band no so old is a new band that rick white is in it's a it's a totally hardcore band Hmm. it's hardcore and they released their latest record on cassette only, Brent. Hmm. Cassette only. We've talked about Eric's trip before. There's a book. I've I spieled about it long time ago, written by a, a Eric's trip super fan that grew up like skateboarding with those guys and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Great band. Nicest guys. Um, they used to come into this record store that I worked at way, way back. Like if, when Julie would come in and flip through the singles, it was like, you know, that movie um, High Fidelity? Yeah. When that when that one musician comes into the store and it's like, oh my god, look who's in here, you know. Yeah. Julie and Rick were in the store, just blew our minds. Nice. Okay, well, go on Rick's YouTube channel and tell me what you think. Okay, I'll report back on your uh, your your tape grab, <laughs> your tape grab uh, part two next week. All right, let's get into some paper bag history lesson part one. All right, Brant. So this is. Episode four on Paper Bag, and everyone is different. Everyone is wild. I kind of, you know, every time I come up on a Paper Bag record, I kind of go, like, I understand why these guys were not really on everyone's favorite list when it comes to SST. But then I put it on, and I listen to it, and I go, man, there's actually some stuff here that is, like, amazing. Mm -hmm. People really missed out. The improvisations so cool the spoken word pieces the poetry so cool so i mentioned this is our fourth one we had episode 76 ticket to trauma and then we had greg siegel on for episode 170 a land without fences and episode 200 music to trash and now we're continuing the story with improvised my ass yeah so if you're counting the years that's 86 87 88 and now 89 so they were cranking them out one a year on sst Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the band's the same lineup as we've seen on the three pre- previous releases. George the Beast, Rad Eye, on bass. Uh, and th- these are just their primary instru- instruments, by the way. They yeah. they sometimes played other instruments, especially Kenny. Um, Greg Seagull on guitar. M- uh, Mark Seagull, or M. Seagull, as he was always credited on, on drums. And Kenny Ryman on keys, loops, tape, you know, tape effects, etc. Yeah, some vocals, some percussion. Yep. As it says on their website, uh, paperbagtheory.com, for Paper Bag's fourth release, we wanted to do something which, in a way, we'd been doing all along, release a live album. Everything else we'd put out had been live in the studio, but we thought it would be nice to get the point across just a little further by having an audience audibly involved. This is probably our most rock-oriented album, but there are still a lot of very odd things going on. Of course, it's Paper Bag. Now, everything was engineered by Phil Newman, some at his Spinhead studio in North Hollywood, some, as it says on the jacket, at Jamie's Dad's Ranch, Canyon Country, California, and the bulk of it at Bebop Records and Fine Art, Reseda, California, all recorded in August of 88. Mm-hmm. Now, so I asked Greg some questions. Uh, so I asked if Spinhead was its own session or if the Spinhead stuff was from one of their previous sessions there. He told me it was the last one we did. We had a very small studio audience actually standing in the room with us. We knew we couldn't fit many people in there, so before the gig, Dave McIntyre and I got party favors they could blow on so they could clap and make extra noise at the same time. You can hear some of that at the end of Studio Hell, one of the tracks. We He, went, he goes on, We also had a decent-sized audience at the ranch sessions. Jamie's dad's ranch was an actual ranch property out in Canyon Country, which is basically desert. Jamie was someone associated with SST, but I can't remember what the connection was. We wanted some place to do an outdoor show, and this was offered. Now, luckily, Ryan, for our listeners, as of January this year, Greg has put this album up on his Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. So there are some liner notes uh, included with that, and of course everyone can listen to it there. It's not up on streaming sites, and it's pretty... I don't know. I've never seen it around. I don't know if it's if it's hard to find or not, but... Like a physical copy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm I sure I got this online. I definitely didn't pick it up local or anything like that. I And it was a sealed cutout copy that yeah. I picked up. Yeah, so I've got some info here that's kind of a mix of stuff Greg told me, stuff from the Bandcamp, and stuff from their website, so... So here we go. When it was time for the follow-up album for Music to Trash, Paper Bag decided it was time for a live album. But wait, you may ask, wasn't all your music live? Yes, it was in the sense that it was recorded as it was made, on the spot. But no records were released of us playing to an audience. We thought maybe we ought to do that. We'd set up a special gig at Bebop Records and Fine Art. It was a small venue, but very much like home to us. Phil Newman set up a mobile 8-track recorder and with Robert Eisenhammer doing live sound, we recorded a two-hour gig, possibly the best show in the band's history. Yeah. And that was on August 20th, 1988. Nonetheless, it was decided that we should do at least one more show, just in case. So they did one again on August 28th, 1988. And that was this one. The second show was an outdoor show at a ranch in Palmdale. 
we made an event out of it and had death and taxes open for us with duets sharing members of both bands going on around and in between at the end of that show we were all ready to go home it had been a long day and there had been problems getting things right also the temperature going from burning to freezing as desert stew wasn't helping our mood but we hoped the gig had produced some good tracks when we listened back however the unanimous opinion was negative really negative we chose one piece beanie boys polka to represent the gig so it was voted that we do one more show this time at spinhead where no mobile recording would be necessary it wasn't a huge space so the audience would be really limited still it was an audience so we went ahead with it and that was august 31st 1988 so basically in a span of two weeks mm-hmm. and from those gigs came, came the songs for this album the record actually didn't come out until early 1989. So yeah, the liners list Robert Eisenhammer for live sound. Greg told me Robert did live sound at KXLU. He said he was excellent at it. I don't recall if Phil mentioned he needed help, but it makes sense. Phil was in charge of recording the album, but someone had to do live sound and Phil couldn't do both. So we asked Robert and he did a great job. It made a big difference for the album. Phil had to pick up what both the band and Robert were putting out. Robert was on the bebop and ranch gigs. So yeah, like KXLU was the the radio station that they played at and Zoogs played at with yeah. um, a Splat Winger show and, and all that kind of stuff. Here's what it says on their website about the album's title. Hmm. He says, M got this stuck in his head and insisted it be the title of the album. He also had the cover art in mind to go with it. We all thought it was funny and went along. The title comes from an incident at a gig. After we'd finished playing, a guy came up to M and started asking about the music, how long it took to rehearse, etc. He'd really enjoyed the show, but when M told him all of those fancy changes hadn't been worked out in advance, that we'd improvised the whole thing, the guy became very offended. He spat out the future title of our fourth album in reply and walked away muttering and shaking his head angrily. The band compiled a list of similar negative audience reactions and intended to put it on the cover somewhere or maybe do it as an insert. Uh, this never happened, Ryan, obviously, but some of them are um, are up on the, the band's Bandcamp page. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other ones. Uh, on the website, Greg says... Some of them are priceless. My personal favorite shouted from the audience at an afternoon show. Why don't you guys quit fucking off and learn some songs? (laughs) (laughs) This, despite the fact that M made announcements a few times per set saying, our music is improvised. I hope you understand. This was released on cassette only in 1989 and a year later in 1990 on LP. Uh, It's never been released on CD. Uh, Greg talks a little bit about how he was disappointed that it never yeah. came out on CD. Yeah, much to his chagrin. Yeah, because of the, you know, that was the thing about Music to Trash being on CD was they had so much material that they were able to better represent, I guess, you know, yeah, what they did. He he, he has talked about releasing the whole thing on on his Bandcamp page, the whole at least the whole Spinhead Sessions. Yeah, the Bebop one, right? Or, yeah, sorry, Bebop, yeah. Yeah, the Bebop one, they they say you know might be their best show in history the uh the description of the rationale for why it was only on vinyl not it sounds like it was the theory 
around, you know, what you could do with the grooves at the time and that if you were going to put more music on the LP, then it would be at a lower volume. Mm-hmm. And and the the response was, well, people can just turn it up, but that didn't seem to resonate with SST. They're like, no, this is going to be the length of the record. And it sounds like it was a bit uh, not not very well received by the band. Certainly Greg would uh, prefer to have the whole thing out there. Yeah, well, as he says, uh, he goes, this album was the end of our relationship with SST. The distribution and promotion was weird. No one we called from across the U.S. had seen a copy or heard it was out. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, my girlfriend Chris was on a trip back home to Germany, and there, in the local record shop, was a copy. I suspect this was for two reasons. One, they liked us better in Europe, and two, the way the contracts were written, SST kept the majority of income from foreign sales. They made more money. There were other problems with our relationship with the label, but as far as the album goes, I, it received no support in the States, and we were fed up. So, pretty typical story there. First, I've heard that these contracts, though, um, allowed for a bigger percent of the royalties to go to SST for... European? For European stuff. In fact, a lot of the SST stuff, well, not a lot of it, but some of the bigger titles weren't even released on SST in Europe. They were released on Blast First, for example. Yeah, I I don't know what the rationale would be there. Presumably, it's because, like, it costs more to ship or to press in, in another country, and therefore SST was entitled to recoup some of that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the band, Ryan, started to fracture at this point with Kenny Ryman leaving the band um, right after this came out. Here's member of paperbag crew Dave and Mac- Dave McIntyre on his love for the band and also um, what happened next. He goes, while my visions of greatness for the band may far exceed my grasp, I can without hesitation say this much, their music changed me forever. It altered how I listen to music, how I look at art, watch TV, etc. It informed my own creativity and my poetry is better because of what I've learned from paperbag. It affected my sense of spirituality opening up my heart to different possibilities. It has, in short, affected every aspect of my life, and I am all the better for it. Because of my love for the band and all the members, I was understandably saddened when, after Improvise My Ass was released, they decided to call it quits. Of course, a couple of years later, when they decided to launch a new, albeit brief, effort, I was thrilled and then shocked and pleased when they asked me to join them as band poet. Here's what Greg told me uh, about Kenny leaving. Kenny left the band for a number of reasons, the biggest of which was that he wanted to do composed music. Another was that we knew our time with SST was over. There had been no promotion or distribution for the album in the U.S. So we were at a turning point, and after close to six years, he'd had enough. I wasn't far behind him, and the band lasted another five months. Uh, Kenny's last show, Ryan, was a radio set in North Hollywood on January 10th, 1989, so pretty quickly after this came out. Yeah. Greg said, we did do gigs as a three-piece, though. Some of those were great. We opened twice for the Fire Merchants, John Goodsall's band after Brand X. We opened for Roger Miller from Mission of Burma, but things were splintering, by, and by June, it was over. So, yeah, and now, Ryan, all four of these SST releases are up on the the band camp along with several radio sets yeah uh and their pre-sst cassette victimless crime kenny ryman's solo album which he completed right before he passed in 2013 
a boatload of Greg's solo albums, including two new ones. So lots to check out there on Greg's Bandcamp. Yeah, and he has a lot of annotations and additional info too that's mm-hmm. available, right? Like it's it's great to dig into that while you're checking out the music. Let's get into these tracks, Ryan. History lesson part two. Okay, track one, side one. Mister, is it Mister Id? I think so. Yeah. Uh, and as we go through these, Ryan, I have some thoughts from Greg that he shared, and also from a an article called Oral Innovations by Jerry Kranitz, circa 2002. So Hmm. I'll be referencing that. Uh, So if you recall, Ryan, the way the band performed was in a round with each of the four musicians starting the improvisation, sometimes just musically, sometimes with a verbal cue to go along with it, like to set the mood. Obviously, this is Greg's round because he just lays down a furious punk riff. It's like, it's like Dr. No is sitting in with a paper bag for the intro, hey? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and then the rest of the band just comes blasting in. You know, like he said earlier, I think it was Greg who said this album is their most rock album. Mm. Yeah. The whole band just tearing it up on this one, that's for sure. Uh, uh, that writer Jerry calls this an intense prog rock tune with a jazzy soft machine feel. Yeah, particularly due to Kenny Ryman's excellent keyboards, but also a fiery rock intensity from the rhythm section and Greg's blazing acidic guitar. Yeah, for I had notes on this one like this turns into just an insane King Crimson Mahavishnu like fusion session with like Kansas Jean-Luc Ponty violins going crazy on this. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, this one's from Bebop, and in fact, all the songs inside one were were from Mm -hmm. Bebop. Uh, Track two is Origin. Uh, I think that's Kenny starting this one. Maybe George. Hard to tell because it starts out pretty pretty quiet. This is a slow burn, almost like a Jane's Addiction feel or something. Reminds me a bit of their song Up the Beach. Like if you, (laughs) when you're listening to it, if you just do a Perry Farrell impression singing Home. Like he does mm-hmm. on up the beach over top of it, you'll you'll see what I mean. Jerry in his article says one of the most gorgeously mellow and passionate songs on any of the four albums. Its atmospheric guitar licks and lounge jazz piano set a drifting course that sweeps the listener along. Of course, the intensity level builds and recedes, but never really breaking from the caressing nature of the music. Mm. Definitely a 70s fusion vibe again for me on this one. It kind of reminds me of some of that Psychic Temple music that Chris Schlarb has been putting out hmm. on uh, his Big Ego label. Definitely into that. The uh, the intro, maybe it's the Jane's Addiction part though, that kind of eerie sound. It hmm. reminded me of like, you know those, um, those whirly tubes where oh. people kind of spin those around, right? Do you know what I mean? Well, there's one of those actually coming up in a bit here. Yeah. So yeah. okay. Well, I did some whirly tube research. Actually, should I should I hit it now or no, wait? No, no. Just hold off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> whirly tube research. I did some whirly tube research. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, on the Bandcamp liner notes, Greg mentions the last note of this song is George kind of resting on on the bass note, and you you hear his chord crackle or something like that. Yeah. He he kind of talks in the liners about how they had a strict policy of never fixing anything you know, after it was recorded, like in the studio, but he did fix that when he, when he put it up on, on Bandcamp. Yeah. Yeah. It's always bothered him. He says, okay, track three, I live in LA. 
Okay, here's what Greg told me. Mark played whirly tubes. His <laughs> Oh, no <laughs> way. exactly what he said while doing the poetry. They make the whistling sound you can hear at the beginning. He had and then he had round container lids on his floor tom heads for the strange sound sounding fills. And then Kenny plays vacuumette on this song. Okay. Do you want some whirly tube research then? I I guess so. <laughs> Because I, I thought I heard it I thought I heard it on track two, and I heard it on this one too, but it's actually officially on this one. I live in L.A., which is a great poem, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's killer killer rap session there. But check it out, Whirly Tubes, also known as the Lasso de Moa, or the Karuga Tube, or the Karuga Phone, or the Sound Tube, the Musical Tube, or the Blugal Resonator. I think that's my favorite, the Blugal Resonator. Kind of sounds like a Frank Zappa lyric, the Blugal Resonator. Um, It's a musical instrument that consists of a corrugated plastic tube that one plays by swinging it in a circle, and the sound is made by the air moving through the tube. And I'm pretty sure the only place I've actually seen one played live was with the Weaker Thans. Oh, yeah. They used to play... um, a song and there was like a instead of a guitar solo they had a whirly tube solo in one of their very slow songs okay the blugal resonator well we had one when my kids were younger i don't know what happened to it but i love this song i love mark's delivery on the poetry he's just so great at it yeah i I love the groove they go into for the second half of the song i love kenny on the vacuumette um here's jerry in his in his piece he goes Starts off as a poetry rant, but soon turns into a thudding jam that's similar to much of avant-garde Krautrocker's escapades work. Honest, mm. Honestly, these guys are tough to describe, but that's the beauty of the bag. Honestly, Ryan, I wish there was more poetry on this album. It's one of the reasons I like music to trash as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the words are good. Yeah. Okay, track four is Barbecue. Greg starts out with what I call a, a cocked wah. And then... <laughs> what? <laughs> that's what you call it. When a wah pedal is all the way, like your foot's all the way on it. I used okay. to have like a uh, like a, a very primitive early uh, computer program with guitar sounds on it. Yeah. And that was one of the tones. Cocked wah. <laughs> <laughs> like you're cocking the hammer of yeah, a, that's right. a gun? Yeah. Okay, except you're pushing it all the way. Okay, I got you. He really rocks the shit out of that wah pedal on this one, Mud Honey style. Yeah, total wah-wah going on. It speeds up, slows down. All seems to be initiated, though, very much by the drums. Like, I think that they're taking their cue in the songs from the drums. Yeah. Jerry calls it an excellent prog psych excursion. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for all the prog sounds on this, especially the A-side, anyways... I'm surprised you don't see more mention of paper bag in Prague circles. Yeah. Like, nev- like never, right? Yeah. Or like jam band improvised circles for that matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, flipping it over. Side two, Beanie Boys Polka. This is the only track, Ryan, from the Jamie's Dad's Ranch sessions. The um, county. Yeah, they talk about, you know, how when it got cold, they, you know, were having a hard time playing and... Yeah, uh, pretty sure that uh, the opening cartoon ditty that Kenny's clearly playing on vinyl because he's spin, uh, speeding up and slowing it down is from the uh, '60s cartoon 
Beanie and Cecil. Hence the title of the song. Whoa. You picked that out? I just I just uh, Googled Beanie Boy and that's what came up. Oh, no way. Yeah. Uh, you're probably right. I didn't think to do that. Good yeah. call. Wow. Well, it's clearly from a cartoon, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. I, for me, it was like, oh, this sounds like some vinyl or tape manipulation, circus music, cartoon music. But uh, wow, that's uh, that's pretty impressive sleuthing. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it took one click. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the way they build the the song kind of around that that loop. Mm-hmm. And when you hear the audience respond at the end of this, you can tell it was recorded outdoors too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The audience. I mean, true. These were all live records. You know you know speaking in in terms of them being improvised but you definitely get a sense of like the audience was into this when you've oh, yeah. got like a live audience they were into the paper bag during these performances into the bag man yeah yep uh the second track on side two frightened lives this is a track from spinhead uh, a greg round i assume he starts the track and everyone else falls in yeah. uh, here's what greg told me kenny's lyrics to the song were based on a movie he'd recently seen called Tampopo, which if I recall was about a family who ran a company that made ramen and they're trying to kill each other to take over the company. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm going to look into. Yeah. (laughs) Frightened lives. Uh, And then track three on side two, Mantel's Last Flight. Another one from Bebop. This is the longest track on the album. It's almost almost eight minutes. All of these are actually pretty long by paper bag standards. Mm. Uh, Jerry calls it a standout track among all of their albums. He says, it begins with spacey Hawkwind guitar, ghostly space whispers, and bleeping UFO synths, but the increasingly steady drumming hints that they are about to take off. And indeed, they do. Yeah, it sounds like a theremin to me sometimes. The guitar goes acid, fripoid, ballistic, and the synths continue their sonic freakout. <laughs> the pace shifts continually, moving through a jazzier segment, though the music never stops rocking. For me, Greg is the star on this one. He, he really tears shit up. Yeah. And then we go back to Spinhead for the last one, Studio Hell. Uh, I'm assuming this is George's round. It kind of starts out with a throbbing bass pulse. Hammer-ons, I yeah. think, yeah. Here's what Greg told me. A lyric Mark wrote during the recording, either right before or on a break. We always joked about the satanic panic where so many people thought devil messages were everywhere in rock. Not just rock, it was everywhere. Somebody had recently said the theme from Mr. Ed had backwards masking and that the talking horse was clearly possessed by the devil and they weren't kidding. I remember that. What? Oh yeah, I remember about that. Mr. About Mr. Ed? Yeah, I remember people saying that. It was probably in the news and stuff, man. Oh my God. Yep. You know what they did to make him talk, right? They just put peanut butter in his lips. That's it. <laughs> it wasn't the devil? No, man. Uh, just, so, just, some, just some skippy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Greg goes on. So he wrote this thing, making a joke out of all of it. None of us had heard it, of course, but when we were doing it, we were trying to keep it together and not laugh. So again, uh, Greg totally shredding. Sounds like even tapping at one point. Uh, he he told me he made the decision for the spinhead sessions to only play uh, with his guitar and amp and his fingers, no picks and no pedals. 
Mm. It's a cool way to, to end the record, you know, with a rip and jam, and then you can hear those party favors at the end. Yeah. So if no pedals for the spinheads, he would not have been able to cock his wah. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Yeah. Okay, so the cover art, Ryan. Uh, again, here's some stuff from the website and from, from the Bandcamp liner notes. M got a cover idea along with the title. This involved what he hoped would be a good promotion for the band as well. The idea was to get the rights to use some Yoko Ono art, bottoms, featuring lots of ass pictures. M got as far as contacting Elliot Mintz, Yoko's liaison, but it was a no-go. So the idea for taking pictures of our own and our friends' asses came up. None of us were particularly shy, and as it turns out, neither were our friends. On October 8th, 1988, after all the recording and mixdown was finished, we had an ass party where the hallway over at the band house was turned into a photo shoot and everyone mooned for the camera. We even had a cake made to serve everyone after the shoot with improvised my ass and a pair of cartoon-style butt cheeks decorated onto it. We put a waiver together, set up in the hallway of M's place, dubbed the band house as Kenny and George roomed there too. We asked everyone we knew if they would be willing to bring out the full moon to come and join us for an ass party. Many of the usual suspects who were friends of the band or personal friends volunteered to put their asses on the line. A picture of the waiver is included as an extra with a couple of names redacted. Their ass photo remains ours to exploit, but I thought a couple of them may wish to keep their anonymity, judging by the current state of relations with band members. I will say that the complete current lineups of three friends bands are represented, along with what Screaming Lord Such might have called heavy friends. So I asked Greg to expand on this. I wanted to know specifically who the other bands represented on the cover were. Oh, yeah. He said, let's see, Dave McIntyre, Tom Shannon, and Harrison Pearl from Death and Taxes. Hiam Sosnow from Cold Sky, uh, and the other members of that were George and Greg. So technically that's two bands. Enoch Hain from the Dickies, Richard Derrick, who was the original uh, bassist for Paper Bag and worked on millions of other pro- projects, including running a record label that released stuff by, amongst others, his old school friend, D. Boone. This, Ryan, would be the uh, Box of Plenty label that released the D. Boone and Friends. D. Boone so, and yeah. Friends. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Also, the band members, significant others, and everybody on the crew list, not previously mentioned so there is a crew list on the on the back back cover he said i'm going off a release form we all signed except that i'm pretty sure all butts were not accounted for and that some people (laughs) came to the butt party and forgot to sign uh and then as for the back cover it was actually a few months before we got around to that chris gruenwald my girlfriend at the time had been taking lots of pictures of the band and i felt she deserved a crack at it I'm not sure if <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if there was a pun intended there or not. Uh, at this maybe. at this point, I'd been smashing acoustic guitars on stage for a while and thought that that might make a nice visual. Emma agreed, but didn't want an action shot. He wanted something impersonal, and so we were instructed to be sure to get a few shots of the debris afterwards. So we did. I found a suitable instrument, and Chris and I went out to Sepulveda Dam. She saw, shot a whole sequence. 
And then M then took a shot of the debris and turned it into an art expression. Hmm. Uh, for the cassette cover, the artwork wouldn't reduce properly to J card size, so the cassette cover is significantly different, and not just in the art. M decided to use a few select asses, particularly <laughs> that belonging to a friend of mine, Cheryl. She'd insisted that the only way she was going to do the shot was if she could have the band's name written on one of her cheeks. She's the only one, one that didn't actually moon. She's wearing a very skimpy thong instead. But considering that she's advertising for us, that was okay. M went over the lettering actually in the photograph in red for the cover, so it looks like it was put on afterwards. Nope, the red's just tracing what was actually written on her rear. And of course, beneath it are four tiny pictures of the four band members bowing before the camera. Small, but certainly visible. Also as a special feature, M wrote a short piece for the inside cover. Mm -hmm. Kenny had already left the band by the time this was done. He'd actually left before we'd even shot the back cover. And the feeling was in the air that we were coming to the end of our time together. It may not have been intended as a comment on all of that, but for me, it makes this already effective short piece even more moving. It serves ultimately as a good epitaph for the band. Ryan, you should read that. You want me to spiel it? Yeah. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> while art is not always trash, it is always disposable. And while it may have relevance, it also just takes up space. People seem to get attached to things destined to pass. Flowers, orgasm, friendship, life. The monuments that mark our graves will one day disappear. As much as we want to think so, art is not immortal. Only the fearless spirit it takes to invent an act of creation from nothing is ageless and knows no death. Yeah, and the cool thing about that is Jim Rulin ended up using this quote as kind of an epigraph at the start of his Corporate Rock Sucks book, which is super yeah. cool. Ryan, there's some dead wax on this one. Hit me. Yeah, okay, here we go. There's a lot of it, though. Yeah, so it's hang long. in there. It's not easy to read. Hang on. So, side one says... Improvise. Man is the adaptable animal. Specialization is for insects. Nice. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. And side B says, conformity enslaves free will. Whew. Heavy, man. Super heavy. Ballot result? Yeah. Ballot result. What do you think, man? Are you going to lean toward a poem? I like Studio Hell, but yeah. I love, I live in LA. <laughs> You'd go for that one? Yeah. I'll, I'll go with it because it's got the, uh, it's got the Blugel resonator on it. Yeah. What's, uh, what were your picks? Um, well, I mean, I like the poetry, but I definitely really dug unexpectedly Mr. Id. Hmm. The, uh, the Crimson Mahavishnu vibes were cool for me. And, uh, I definitely liked the, uh, the theremin. Well, I know they weren't theremin. The theremin sounds, I guess, on Mantel's Less Flight. But uh, I'm, a, I'm into the whole record. It's, I kind of said this at the outset. Like, I'm always surprised by Paper Bag. I kind of feel like, you know, this is going to be a little bit too out there. And this is all always one of the ones that was relegated to the cutout bin. And I've got a cutout copy. Um, but then when I listen to it, it's like, no, man, this there is something there. And I wish that people, 
like like I said, like in the prog circles, in the improv circles, in the jam band circles, people really got to get their head together and check out the bag, you know? Yeah. Get to get to um, the band camp and dig deep because there's some cool stuff here. I just uh, I, I'm just surprised that after all these years, um, and maybe I'm just not looking at the right stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I would. It's it's basically impossible to find out anything about Paper Bag other than our three main sources. Yeah. You know, the band camp, the uh, the Paper Bag website, and to talk with the band members. That's it. Well, you know, they had obviously a devoted fan base and, yeah. a, and a really good circle of friends, but this is not the kind of thing that most people would be into. No. No. Uh, but what a cool and unique band. And just no fear to get up on a stage and just go for it like that. Yeah, just strap on their headbands and kill it. Yeah. Right? I'm bummed well, that we won't be seeing the bag on the show again. Hey, Ryan, Greg's been a super big help for all of these paper bags episodes. So thanks again, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we've got uh, one of our faves on the show that we don't see enough. And it's SST 230, The Last Awakening LP, and some extra special guests. Yeah. We're trying something a little different next week. Not going to tell you who, so tune in and check it out. Ooh, cliffhanger. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.